to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, so if you've listened to other episodes, you'll probably like future episodes. And this one. For this conversation, I spoke with Sarah Gerard, who is the author of the essay collection Sunshine State, which was longlisted for the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay and the novel Binary Star, which was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction. Her short stories, essays, interviews, and criticism have appeared in the New York Times, T Magazine, Granta, Baffler, and Vice, and in the anthologies Tampa Bay Noir, We Can't Help It If We're From Florida, and Small Blows Against Encroaching Totalitarianism. She lives with her true love, the writer Patty Yumi Cottrell. Find her at sarahgerard.com, and of course, the book that came out in early July, True Love, with which we spend most of our time conversing. There's also some minor spoilerier bits for True Love, so I encourage you to just go ahead and buy the book, read the book, and then come back and listen to the episode. Sarah reads from chapter two at the end of this episode, so if you need a little bit more convincing than just my word, you can skip to the end, listen to that, then go buy the book, read the book, and listen to the actual conversation. If you would like to help out the show, you can do so in a one-time fashion at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. At the $2 level, you'll get some occasional flash fiction and poetry from me, and about a week early episodes of this show and any other podcasts I may do in the future, and I'm now starting at the $5 level, a serialized story of about a thousand words a week entitled Jellyfish Aches, which is dark and grimy and ridiculous, absurd, and just kind of weird. So if you're into that, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. That's enough of me asking you to give me money. Let's get into what you're here for, which is my conversation with Sarah Gerard. So a couple days ago, you tweeted an article on The Baffler called What Women Want that talks about your book, uh, True Love, and, um, oh dear, uh, the novel I Want. Lynn Seeger's Strong. That's the one, yes. Um, and it highlights what I was thinking as I was reading this, because I, I, uh, before reading True Love, I had also read um, Juliet the Maniac, which is kind of in the same... Ooh, sort of subgenre. Mm-hmm. I love that book. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, good. my year of rest and relaxation, I read earlier mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. this sort of thing. This like um, uh, women in like this post lean in sort of world, uh, mm-hmm. writing first person. Uh, that the the Baffler article links to another article that I skimmed this morning um, called "I'm Not Feeling Good at All." And, um, as a man who also like has read not nearly enough women, like it's, it's a really sort of jarring experience, especially someone like me who reads a lot of experimental stuff. So it's a lot of like, you know, just messing with form and just kind of like pure emotion into this really, um, compact and visceral, real sort of world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, hmm. 
visceral and real. I think those are the words that stand out to me here. Um, another person asked me recently in an interview for a Southern Review um, why the body is so outsized in my work. And mm. I hung on to that word outsized because <laughs> I don't think it's outsized. I think that um, I am... I'm trying to convey uh, the intensity of a moment, um, you know, in a given scene and, um, you know, in, in reaching for emotion, I, I, I have to reach for its experience in, in the body. I mean, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and there's, and I think also the sharpened attention that comes with fear. I think a lot of what is happening in true love is, this is, you know, different degrees of fear or panic or shame or which is a kind of fear or, um, you know, paired with desire. Um, and which I think beneath that desire is also Nina's fear of, you know, being alone or being abandoned um, or rejected. So, yeah. And, you know, so what she wants is, um, safety and and being you know and and to be protected and uh loved and accepted and you know our primary experience of that as as humans in this world is touch with the mother right mm -hmm. and so the, the first thing a baby experiences is the touch of another human being uh whether that's the nurse you know first the nurse and then and then the mother when they're laid on the mother's chest um you know, it's like that really fundamental reassurance that Nina is looking for. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, and, and, and meanwhile, her, her, you know, in, in her, I think, sharpened attention, she's making very, report, you know, factual, um, just kind of uh, reporting on what she sees or reporting the facts of the environment that she's in. So we have, I guess, that, you know, that, really intense uh, duality of inside and outside or interior and exterior, you know, the beating of her heart and her chest or feeling um, like she's floating to the bathroom in a moment of panic. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then the cold of the tile, you know, as she sits in the bathroom floor, for instance, yeah. um, and that sharp difference. So um, I hope that answers. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a question. But there there wasn't of, really a question. It was, <laughs> yeah. The, there's, um, uh, I put myself when I, when I do this show, I put myself in a weird position because um, I perpetually feel underread. Um, and then when it comes to like reading not white men and then talking to the people who write, um, you know, about that, uh, I feel always like um, just profoundly um, unversed in what I'm reading and then what I'm talking about. Um, well, I like the, I mean, the pairings that you made in the, you know, a couple of minutes ago with Juliet Astoria and Otessa Moshfeg and Lynn Seeker Strong. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, our work, our work does have this commonality of, um, yeah, I mean, I think just very intense female narrators who want, like, uh, um, Caitlin said in her review, you know, beyond their means. Yeah. Um, 
and who uh, who also aren't afraid to report on their pain. Yeah. And just being like profoundly flawed too, I think. Right. Helps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, profoundly flawed for sure. Yeah, I mean, and unash- you know, profoundly but unashamedly, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, you know, we're not special for being flawed. We, and I mean, by we, I mean the female narrators. Um, you know, they're not. Um, they're they're flawed for they're they're flawed, and they're examining the reasons why, or they're or they're examining their response to that revelation, or that unavoidable fact. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and other people too. Yeah. <laughs> other people's flaws too. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things I I sort of messed up when I when I was marking on Goodreads that I was reading the book. I I briefly skimmed some of the user reviews, which is sometimes really uh, enlightening and sometimes not. Um, I don't read them. <laughs> just to let you know, I don't. No, I really, I really don't, and I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that I'm afraid. Not that I'm afraid to admit that my work is flawed. I just because uh, everybody's work is flawed, right. and I'm sure mine is. And I'm sure that this. I know that this book is not for everyone, and I don't. But you know, I think that people make wild assumptions about authors in their reviews and yeah. why you write what you write and what kind of person would write this and you know, or or just you know, crazy assumptions about the way you live your life. And I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't engage with that. Sure. Yeah, I saw someone on Twitter basically saying something like, hey, this book that's about to come out has a lot of stuff uh, that's really uncomfortable, and I wrote it in first person. I'm, it's not autobiographical. Please don't. Yeah. Please don't yell yeah. at me for the things that are in this book. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But I th- one of the, it was interesting because the, the, the two that I saw were one was positive and one was less positive, but they were both for the same reason in that the characters to them were unlikable. Um, <laughs> and so I went into it reading like the first third of the book. I was like, oh, this is kind of how I imagine the show Girls is because I've never seen it. But, you know, I've just heard people complain about it, really. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is probably it. You know, sort of this like post-millennial sort of like arty people have privilege. Um yeah. But oh my god, the book ramps up and it like it really creeps up on you in like oh, Seth is annoying because he reads like a placard next to a painting. Like he talks like that. Um <laughs> and and Thank then you. suddenly like you know, 100 page, pages later people are throwing things at each other and yeah. you know, bleeding and fighting and screaming and mm-hmm. um Uh, It was really masterful to me how that tension just creeped up on me until I was like, wait a minute, these characters are no longer annoying or pretentious. They're like actively dangerous. Right. It's a range. It's a range of behavior. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think each of the um, characters in the book is, well, one of the things I was thinking about with toxicity and how that manifests in our world are you know in our environment in our media in our uh, government and in our personal interaction um, or in our homes and yeah I mean um, toxic masculinity is uh, a, a, a range of behaviors you know Rebecca Solnit wrote about this years ago um, 
men explain things to me. It's a great collection. Mm. Um, I think it should be basic, you know, I think it should be required reading in every high school. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's some really three dimensional depictions, um, of toxic relationships in the book and, um, and the men stand out, you know, um, because I think, yeah, I think the men stand out because, you know, it's a pattern it's a pattern in, in Nina's life that, um, you know, that she, it's almost as if her, her relation, her relation to the male sex is itself a sort of trance. Mm -hmm. Um, so that escalates, um, as consequences mount for her, you know, inability to be honest with herself and other people, um, about that and about, like you said, her flaws, um, she, you know, yeah, she, she puts herself in, in, in situations without, I think, fully realizing the potential consequences. Um, and, and that, that does turn, uh, dangerous after a while. And, and there's not an easy escape. No, no, there's not. Oh, about halfway through, um, I sort of had this revelation with myself that I should read the book like it were a self-help book. Um, <laughs> and I, I have a feeling that wasn't intended, but um, it was like, oh, here's all these things not to do. Like there, there was a point where I realized, oh, these characters aren't going to change. Like their self-reflection methods are flawed. Um, it's only going to get worse. It's reading like a noir story. Um but I can use it. Yeah, it's really seedy. Yeah. <laughs> very seedy environment. Yeah. But, yeah. but I can use it as a reader to like, and as a person, you know, in a relationship to to kind of see what happens. Because there's great, like, um, passive aggression that happens that, you know, happens every day that you notice in the book as like part of this like ongoing conflict that happens. Hmm, what do you mean? Say more about that. Oh, geez. Passive aggression. Oh, man. You're, you're <laughs> no, academia. I, mean, I agree with you. <laughs> um, barely. I'm an adjunct. <laughs> um, I've, I, uh, it was like um, a lot of the, the, the conflict with Aaron about money. Um, oh, yeah. Sort of like... the the way that Nina and Aaron talk to each other about money um and the way that um they're both sort of seeing like uh Nina's sort of looking at results whereas Aaron's looking at things in terms of potential and the way that right. they um interact not knowing or not accepting that the other person's looking at it that way and then not taking that into account um I I don't know I just feel like that happens an awful lot where we're not talking about the same things. I don't know if I went down the path the way you wanted me to go down the path. No, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, because Aaron is thinking in terms of potential, but and 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 you're right. Nina is thinking. Nina is thinking in terms of, uh, I guess of the you know um, of reality you know like yeah. the facts of their of their situation and um i think they're both trying in their own ways um but aaron 
perhaps is failing to realize that um, investment that there that if he's making an investment, the uh, down payment must come from somewhere, mm-hmm. and and he expects that to come from Nina uh, or from his parents or just from the world that owes it to him that he should just be invited some, you know, he should just be invited in because, uh, because he's here. Right. right? He, you know, I'm here at the door of potential, please open, <laughs> you know, but he doesn't, you know, but I mean, but somebody, um, you know, and, and he thinks that it should just open Sesame, you know, and, um, he, but I think at the same time, like, um, how do I say this? Um, Well, I mean, I think their conversation in the in the brunch spot is, you know, kind of says it all. Mm-hmm. You know, Nina's, Nina's like, you you stay home playing on your computer all day doing who knows what. I'm not, you know, ostensibly writing your script, but where is it? And who's going to make it? And who's paying our rent? You know, she's like, I'm working retail and taking off my clothes on the side to pay our rent. And he says, don't be dramatic. And that, but that's exactly what yeah. is happening, and um, and and I think Nina feels as if she's making an unfair investment. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I <laughs> yeah. I remember yeah. an old um, piece I read on Cormac McCarthy, who um, lost his first wife. Uh, well, she divorced him for sort of the same reason. Like he put out books and obviously didn't make a whole lot of money because he was living off of being a novelist and was invited to give talks at colleges. And he was like, why would I talk about my book? I wrote it. Just read the book. And so they were like living in a shed eating beans. And like, Mm -hmm. you can't just go give a talk for a couple thousand dollars at a college. Like who cares if you, you know, like, just go talk about your book so you can right. feed your wife. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Nina says, you know, go get a job at a coffee, at, the, at the coffee shop where you go every day and pay $5 for a latte. They know you. They see you every day. And he says, well, I don't have any coffee shop experience. And she says, who cares? Go ask. Yeah. You know, basically, just go at least apply. And then he says, well, I, then I wouldn't be available if somebody wanted to make my movie. It's like, I, I <laughs> yeah. It's so frustrating. I mean, yeah, it's designed to be it's designed to be infuriating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. the The entitlement is baffling. Right, and I say this <laughs> as a person who saw a lot of like a lot of me, like in the latter half of college and maybe first two years out of college. Like, I want to say it's an uh, and. Uh, Mm-hmm. like a hyperbolized version of me but like yeah there's a lot of that in there that's just like but wait what you know the day i decide to get a real job is the day that someone's gonna come knocking <laughs> at my door and what do i do then you know not like oh i guess i'll just quit my job if a better opportunity yeah. comes along which is you know the thing that you would do so i guess that's where i come at it thinking of like almost reading it like a self-help yeah. book like yeah 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 like oh my god like there's so much of me in there and like you know i i I dislike a lot of these characters for their the things that they do but i'm also seeing the things that they do that they dis that i dislike um within myself so god damn it i had to learn 
from reading a book. Who would have thunk it? Yeah, you brought up Cormac McCarthy, and certainly Cormac McCarthy is a genius, and um, it's it's possible Aaron is also a genius, uh, but it's possible Nina is too, mm-hmm. and it's possible Cormac McCarthy's wife was too. And, you know, how many male geniuses are we aware of throughout history um, versus, you know, versus women who have been erased, purposefully erased from history because, you know, a male genius relied upon their investment. Yeah. 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 I mean, the basic assumption that Nina should make sacrifices so that Aaron can can live a life of leisure and find himself through his, you know, uh, script is pretty, you know, while Nina has to eke away at her MFA and, you know, and whatever review she's writing for the Brooklyn Rail uh, in her off hours, you know, is, you know, I mean, all of that is sort of underwriting that conversation in the brunch, in the brunch restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. And, like I will say, for the, for the longest time, I looked at the Cormac McCarthy story as sort of like heroic, like you know the single mindedness. Um, I'm a big fan of David Lynch and like his art life thing at the expense of everything else in his life, like art and coffee and cigarettes. Like that's what I care about. Um, like there's a pressure that I feel to like get closer to that almost like monastic ideal as an artist. Um, that's just, it's unattainable if you also care about having relationships with people. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, or unless you have a partner who is equally invested in that story, um, which Nina is not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nina cares as much about her own art as, as, as Aaron cares about his. And then you throw in, I mean, I, and I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think if Nina was, I think if Nina were living in that studio apartment by herself, and living her monastic artist life, and and supporting herself, working retail and modeling for drawing classes, and um, you know whatever other odd jobs she can pick up uh, from Craigslist, then that would be fine. You know, she's making that sacrifice for herself. Aaron is basically manipulating her into making that sacrifice for both of them. Um, which is impossible. It's just physically impossible. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about too in this book, to go back to our conversation about the body, is that consequences always happen in the body. Mm-hmm. And sacrifices always come from the body. And, and art always comes from the body too. And you, your body is not a machine with, you know, that, that runs on sunlight. Yeah. Oh, what's the name of that, that group that does that? Oh, that's a real thing. I forget the name. Oh, you mean the um, breatharians? Br- breatharians, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> As I yeah. frantically type. No, but I mean. But yeah, uh, like they've been disproved. They're they're well, yeah. I mean, and of course we think of them as being wackadoos because mm-hmm. it's impossible. Because we all know it's impossible. Um. Yeah. Uh, so you are also different from a lot of people I have on here as, uh, you have more than one degree. <laughs> you, you have the, uh, the MFA and you, you, you know, have been published in, you know, your more indie, uh, 
places as well as larger uh, places as well. And there's... Your your writing doesn't strike me as like academic writing in the sort of like pejorative sense because I um, wouldn't think about it pejoratively because I enjoy it. But um, as I was reflipping through Binary Star today, and maybe it's because of my experience with you know different forms of writing uh, since then. Um, do you like how do you think yourself? think of yourself as a writer like do you find yourself thinking of being like an academic type writer or something different um well what do you mean by something different hmm so i've been i've been trying to like hammer down on a something like through the episodes of this podcast i've talked to people about like what are they doing now that alt lit isn't really a thing? I talked to Sam Pink about that and um, sort of the idea of writing community and like these like schools of thought with regard to writing that there's like indie writers, experimental writers, academic writers. And by academic writers, I guess I just mean like MFA recipients who also write, but not in huge presses. Um, mm-hmm. So by something else, I mean, you know, not that. Like one of the other schools that I've listed or not listed. or I've been trying to, from, you know, the fringes, understand the various circles that exist within the contemporary writer ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I think of myself as being part of a school, uh, you know, of writing. Um, I notice that there are some cliques in the literary world, um, and I've never been somebody who could fit in that way, um, which was very troubling to me as a teenager, but now, mm. uh, and I, and I guess now even, you know, because there's a, there's a, a an inner child that we all carry <laughs> around with us. Um, you know, maybe there's a part of me that wonders too, like, where do I fit in? Um, but I can't, that's not for me to decide. I think that yeah. I can't really make that decision. And, um, I've been asked a similar question in the past about genre because I write fiction and nonfiction mm-hmm. um, and my fiction ranges in style and form and so does my nonfiction and I, I also don't have a degree in journalism um, I've just been you know I find my way as I go um, which is very humbling Um but, you know, I'm always told, you know, that those people who ask me, where does your book, you know, where does your work fit in, um, basically are asking me, like, where, not you, but, you know, mm-hmm. in the past, when they ask about fiction or nonfiction, they're basically asking, you know, where, where should I shelve you in a bookstore? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. That's for the market to decide, not me. Um, when I'm writing, I don't think about, uh, I don't think about mar- the market or what 
what you know I, I think about rules of form not rules of um not not you know yeah not the rules of packaging or design um does that make sense yeah absolutely um yeah uh, so yeah go ahead uh well i mean yeah i don't know i mean and when i teach my approach is uh you know, to to give students a, a range of examples for how they might go about their work, um, and and a set of tools to use um, when you know as they're you know as they would if they were making a sculpture or you know choreographing a dance. You know, there are principles of making art that hold true across disciplines. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't, you know, but, and I guess we'll talk about publishing, too, in my classes sometimes, but it's usually one uh, class session, part of one class session, and it's kind of a Q&A format where if they have any questions about how, how to pitch their work or how to get published or whatever, you know, that's, then we'll cover that, you know, in one, in one go, but I really don't think it's productive when you're teaching somebody how to get how to communicate the ineffable part of their soul. I don't think it's, um, it's not useful for them as artists to think about where they're going to fit in um, yeah. when, when the work is done because it's, it's just scary and it's irrelevant anyway. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. And it's, okay. it's kind of along the line that um, I, I've been getting is that like, I write the stuff I write and I end up making friends that write similarly that, mm-hmm. you know, have similar philosophies. And that makes sense to me. Like yeah, that's, that's pretty logical that that would be the case, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually a lot of authors find publishing to be tiring. Um, you know, the process of losing control of your own work this can be really emotional uh other people's responses to your work can be really emotional um watching your book uh think or swim can be really emotional um and so and most writers are introverts some of them are also extroverts but in order to be a writer you have to be an introvert part of the time Mm -hmm. and so uh you know, um, probably a lot of writers have that experience of feeling as if they don't fit in, <laughs> you yeah. know, because that's, that's kind of a fundamental part of being an introvert. It's like, Ugh, I don't really want to, you know, interacting with other people is exhausting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know if I just lost control of the point there, but no, yeah. that's good. Okay. I find that it's been interesting to watch um, certain writers break from like the indie into getting published by larger publishers. Uh, Blake Butler, you, um, Jeff Jackson was also published from $2 radio and then mm-hmm. moved on to, to larger presses. What was that um, journey like for you? Like from binary star to um, sunshine state to true love? Uh, I worked on Sunshine State and, and True Love with the same editor, Aaron Wicks, 
uh, at Harper, Harper Collins. Uh, she was at Harper Perennial and now she's at Harper Books and uh, she's really just the best. Um, we become close friends. I trust her with my inmost secrets and concerns and confessions. Um, and yeah, I, I feel lucky that I, to, to be working with somebody who understands my, me and my work and my project. Um, and everybody at Harper is just really supportive um, and involved and they care and they get it. And so that it's been, it's been great. Um, I think my, my qualm with, with uh, corporate publishing is on the, you know, it's just the fact of it being corporate. Mm -hmm. Um, Rupert Murdoch owns Harper Collins, you know, um, I don't like that feeling. And I know that there are people who work in publishing who don't like that aspect of it, you know, and, and wish there were an alternative. And sometimes I dream, I mean, often, and especially lately, uh, I, I've been dreaming of an alternative model where, whereby, um, success is not measured by the size of your book advance, uh, whereby authors can receive, um, you know, like a salary, uh, you know, or some kind Mm. of assurance that they will uh, be supported while they do their work and not, you know, I mean, authors work for free until they, until they get lucky enough not to right now. And and then the size of your advance is, is determined by the size of your Twitter following. And it's just, it's just, I mean, it's just not fair and it's racist and it's homophobic and, and it's, and it's colluding with evil. And I, I hate, I hate it. I mean, I, I love the people I work with at Harper, but I hate that part of it. I hate it. And I, I wish it were. And so, I mean, I guess that's why I have a lot of respect for the, the people at $2 radio and, and every other and who I've worked with, um, before and it were so good to me and so good to all of their authors and they just do really important uh, work. Um, but, but all independent publishers. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, in publishing, but I hope that we can make a move towards uh, decentralizing publishing and paying authors fairly and, um, and, and exploring alternative methods of bringing work into the world that actually methods that value the the real labor that artists do. Yeah, I agree. I, the idea of paying an artist salary is fascinating to me. I hadn't even considered that, mm-hmm. but I like that. I know. A lot. Why not? How come? Right. <laughs> well, I you, work every day. <laughs> every you, writer I know works every day on some, in some way. Yeah. And I mean, you think about it, you know, most people who work normal nine to five hour jobs only actually do like three hours of work a day, you know, to expect a writer to write for three hours a day straight. Uh, like that's an awful lot of labor that you're doing. Like that's, that's a lot of emotional things that you're putting yourself through and like intellectually. Well, but I have to, I have to, Yes, you're right. Um, but I but I also have to remind you that the work that a writer does happens elsewhere than on her computer. Oh, indeed. Yeah. For instance, for instance, I'm working right now and having this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, um, we both had to prepare for this. 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You had to, I mean, how many hours did you invest in reading my book and preparing questions and um, preparing the technology to, you know, to record and where you're going to store it and how you're going to edit it and all of that is labor. Um, when I teach other writers, it's labor. When I correspond with other writers planning events, that's labor. The event itself is labor. So, um, you know, and all of this contributes to our culture in a really important way, and that needs to be recognized. There's too, I think too often, and I, I hear a lot of artists talking about this, and, and more and more lately, and especially artists of color, talking about the expectation that they perform free labor, you know, in exchange for recognition or something, or, you know, raising their profile as if that's necessary for that, as if they need that. And it's insulting and it's exploitative. Mm, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that opens the door in my understanding. And, you, you know, that's one of those okay. things that's sort of like, you know, like, um, you know, not surprising, but like, oh, yeah, that's right. I haven't really thought about it like that. Like, um, the fact that, that the word labor is so tied up with like negative emotions for me, at least like mm-hmm. this doesn't feel like work because I'm enjoying doing this. I enjoy editing audio. So like, it doesn't feel like working. The the stuff that feels like work is the stuff that makes me money. So, but yeah, absolutely. Like mm-hmm. that's completely right. And I mean, even in all like the sort of leftist um, political philosophical thought that I engage with, um, writers, artists tend to sort of just be left out of that conversation, right? Like all the examples are like factories, like, but you know, indeed, like if you make a chair for steel case, it's really not that much different than writing a book for penguin. You know, you still assembled mm-hmm. something and then they're going to take surplus value from it. I guess it's just harder to quantify. Right. right. Yeah, we've never really tried to. Yeah, we've never tried to. Um, but it is labor. Yeah, I just had a radical thought when you said, when you were, were talking about the negative connotations of that word, uh, and I, I, I couldn't help but think of the labor of child childbirth, oh. of a woman being in labor, and how, you know, and I think, and, and how you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we actually paid women to give birth? And why don't we? <laughs> why don't we? Why did Lynn, why did Lynn Seeger Strong's narrator go, go into debt when she had to have a C-section? Right? Mm. I mean, why, you know, why did she go into debt instead of being paid, you know, for that, for, for the very real physical sacrifice and labor that she, that she, that she gave? you know right especially since that child will almost certainly uh just become a a laborer themselves themselves right exactly right yeah exactly huh that's interesting another body in the workforce Mm -hmm. somebody should write a book about that i mean i think so yeah um but you know i mean there but this is just that and, and that's just one of you know innumerable examples of the kind of labor that we devalue in, in this society and you know, who gets paid for their labor and what kind and on what pay scale. Yeah. Yep. I worry about and what do like, we expect and what kind of labor do we expect to be done for free? Yeah, absolutely. I worry about the, like the fascist implications that could come from giving 
a woman money for having a child. Like that, like, <laughs> I'll give you $50,000 for a pure Aryan fetus. Right. I, yeah, there's always a way to, I mean, and that's, I don't know, maybe that's the problem with utopias. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, well, I, I hadn't thought, and, and yeah, I mean, see, that's why, and this is where stories come from. We, yeah. we do have to, uh, this is this is a novel waiting to happen because you're you're right, we should think all the way through these implications. Yeah. And just, oh God, language is so fun. Yeah. Like labor going into labor. <laughs> um, and like how that might translate. I've been, I've been desperately trying to learn German for the past couple of years and like hmm. rewiring your brain. They talk about in the movie arrival, like how you rewire your brain when you learn a new language and the way mm-hmm. that like just the connotation that different words have, like how a book like that, um, you know, a book about giving labor or going through labor, giving birth, um, you know, attaching a monetary value to that for, for the reason that, you know, labor is called labor, um, how that might translate Mm -hmm. into a completely different Mm -hmm. language. Um, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, so much of narrative is guided by language and what it implies when you, when you really stop and look at it and, and think through its etymology and make discoveries and connections that were always there, but but that you had never known before. You know, it is like opening a new world. Um, for instance, I mentioned toxicity earlier, and I was really thinking about, you know, how it manifests in true love. And I was thinking about how it manifests in, in love and how it manifests in our environment and our waterways and our government, you know, and, mm-hmm. and in masculinity and in femininity and even the toxicity that comes from from trauma that isn't um, that isn't dealt with, you know, um, and yeah, I mean, and it and it did open. I mean, it it kind of opened the world of the book for me, and it also, um, you know, it like it it, it opened it it came out a lot in in the setting of the of the book, and so it it really did make the make the world of the book. Um, yeah, yeah, language is fun that way. Um, and it tells you a lot about how your, like, how your memory is organized, how your neuroanatomy is organized. When you, when you realize that you have been making these latent connections all along, and that's why it's showing up in your book, and that's how you've been understanding it, it, it opens up a part of your own mind to yourself. Yeah, absolutely it does. Oh man, I love it. I love it when this happens in in these in these interviews where I just like I can no longer think of how to continue. <laughs> well, you're learning German. You're learning German, right? So mm-hmm. how is this happening and how is this happening for you in German? Um uh in a in a much less meaningful way like um if you say like what about? Like what about this deck of cards? Um, uh, the Germans would say was is mit, uh, which is literally like what is with. So like, what about my deck of cards? And in German, it would translate to like, what is with my deck of cards is an, sort of an interesting <laughs> thing. Um, That's funny. the word egal, E-G-A-L, um, means like not important. Um, so if you were to say it is not important, you say es ist mir egal, which is like, 
it does me no importance. Um, mm-hmm. Where where German mm-hmm. like puts I and me in sentences with relation to things that are happening or objects or ideas is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Where like um, it's kind of less declarative. Like it is not important, um, rather than like it is not. It does no importance to me. You know, it sort mm-hmm. of like allows for it to be important in other ways. The verbs are like reflexive. Mm-hmm. I've I know a little I know a little bit of Spanish and um, or I I studied it in school growing up in Florida a lot of sure. the Spanish classes come with the territory and so I took Spanish in school and then um, I have traveled to Mexico a couple, a couple of times and Argentina and um, mm-hmm. so I would like brush up on my Spanish before traveling and yeah they love those reflexive verbs too it's interesting how much like it takes I mean it's again like. I don't know, Nina kind of makes a joke about it, like uh, in True Love or in the midst of an argument where she kind of scoffs and says, well, everybody is the center of their own universe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's like, well, it does me no good. And um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how that shapes the way you see the whole world, how language shapes the way you see the whole world and your relation to it. Yeah, absolutely. And the the idea of translations uh brings me such anxiety lately like as i get to the point where i'm feeling comfortable buying a book um in german i find myself stopping myself from buying books that were originally written in english that have been translated into german because i'm like no i want to know mm-hmm. how like germans write <laughs> right like i've read kafka mm-hmm. there's there's that um I don't even know how ubiquitous it is, but it's stuck in my head. The the pretentious, like, you'll never truly understand Kafka until you read it in the original German. Um, <laughs> and it's, like, always pushed me to, like, yeah, I've read Kafka in English, yeah. but, like, what am I missing? Yeah. And have you, are you able to read Kafka in German? Oh, God, no. No, not yet. <laughs> um, I've, yeah. I've tried, I, I, I but even... it's it's tough. I can't even read like a middle grade novel in Spanish. I've tried to. I mean, I can if it's really slow. Like I have to, it takes, I have to labor over every page and, you know, I'll, I'll get through it, but I can't, it's not com- a comfortable reading level for me. Um, I don't know. I call my Spanish restaurant Spanish. Like I can really get at ordering things mm. for, for everyone. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I, I, I can I, do, I can, it's possible at the post office or the ATM. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's about where I'm at, too. I don't have anybody to, mm-hmm. like, speak with in German. Like, it's it was a completely sort of arbitrary choice in high school when it was like, what language do you want to learn? You have to learn something. And it's like, ah, everybody does Spanish. So instead of mm-hmm. doing something, like, utilitarian, I just did, like, ah, I like Rammstein, so I guess I'll try to understand Rammstein songs. <laughs> Yeah, see, I can, uh, I, I, I can, I've learned a couple of Vivian and Yandel songs. Like, I like reggaeton, I like, you know, I mean, I, I and, and song lyrics are, are a good way for me to learn, but then I find that actually, the, like, they're not, because, you know, like, a lot of them are love songs, mm. so actually they're not, they're not really useful when I'm, like, trying to give a taxi driver a direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but it is a goal of mine. It's a it's a huge goal of mine to get serious and and learn and become fluent, um, which I know gets harder as I age. But um, 
that I, I, I have thought about actually like going back to school and majoring in Spanish and getting a bachelor's degree or something just because mm. I need structure. I'm the kind of person that needs structure and I don't know, but these are flights of fancy. We'll see if it actually happens. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, imp- I think it's really important. And, you know, I, as somebody who reads a lot of work in translation, I'm super grateful for the work that translators do. And it's also a lot of thankless work and, um, yeah, I mean it's it's a tragedy. Uh, it's a, a, a on a global scale that American children do not learn foreign languages in schools um, as they should, you know, as well as they should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple. And most Americans are not. There's know. there's a couple immersion schools around here, like Spanish immersion schools. Um, but yeah, it's that's it's definitely something that my wife and I have talked about. Like, I always joke that we'll have two kids and I'll speak to one in English and one in German and I'll just get upset when they ask me why. Like, <laughs> like if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna traumatize my children, I might as well do it in a way that's kind of silly. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's like, um, I don't know. I, I also find it uh, important. I had sort of a conversation about that with uh, Noah Cicero when he was on here about haikus and Japanese, like Buddhist haikus that already have like hidden meaning and then you're translating them into a different language into your language and then trying to like glean the meaning there's like all extra hoops to jump over to get to what it is you're trying to get to there's an early version of true love um in which nina leaves uh, a haiku on seth doorknob and I don't think it made it into the last draft but um but she writes out a basho haiku and uh and and folds it up into like origami and leaves it suspended from his doorknob and it said and the haiku was uh between your life and mine there is also the life of the cherry blossoms Mm. and and that one haiku um I found I originally encountered that haiku, um, I don't even remember when, I must have been Nina's age, like so in my early 20s, um, in an anthology. And I went looking for it when I was writing the book, because I never forgot it. And it, there's something about that image that just stuck in my mind. And that the flower blooming between the two people, and that stuck in my mind. And um, so I went looking for it just to like confirm, fact check, and I couldn't find it. And it's because that w- it was like some obscure translation. And I don't even know what the, I mean, there, I think there have been like 10 different translations of this one haiku, but, um, but it was a really obscure one and probably not one that, you know, um, most translators would consider to be good, but it was the one that stuck hmm. with me. So I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a fascinating thing. Um, yeah. Um, there, so I feel like I can't remember where it was as you were talking, I was trying to flip through, but there was this um, moment of anxiety that Nina feels about like that. She's taken the wrong path in life. And I can't remember exactly what happens, Um, but it's almost like she kind of like recounts her choices and then like has a moment of grief for like the choices that she didn't make. Am I thinking of a thing that Um... actually exists? I don't know. Yeah, good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know where exactly. It, it seems like one of those moments that could happen more than once in this 
story. So I don't know, I don't know exactly which one you're thinking of. Do you know what the scene is? Or I feel like she's in the bookstore at that point. I I don't annotate books as I read, so I I'm working purely off of memory. Um, she's in the bookstore. I think so. So it's later in the book. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. If you have any other details, I, I might be able to find it. Yeah, uh, well, you are the person who wrote it, so um, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it's not entirely important. Um, as... I think there's a lot of re- there's a lot of regret in the book. Yeah, I will give you that. Yeah. Uh, um, there was just like this moment as I was reading, and so I, I might have been like more just reading my mind reflected onto the page than what was actually written, but um, that like there's this anxiety that I feel and have been trying to put into words of like, I'm terrified that I won't be able to experience everything that can possibly be experienced before I die. Like that anxiety has been plaguing me for the past couple of months. Um, I totally unconnected to the fact that like we've all been stuck in our homes for the past months, just, just like on its own. And I feel like I felt that so strongly while reading true love, like uh, every every decision that's being made is like restricting the possibility of more and better experiences. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. She's talking about the closing off. Yes. The closing off of possibilities beginning in the moment you're conceived. Mm. Is that, is yes, that the, absolutely. There's, is that the one? Okay. Yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. Cause she has, she's just found out that she's, um, well, she's she's just had an abortion. That's what um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh no, is that a spoiler? Ugh. People should be reading the books I'm talking about on this show before I talk about them. <laughs> I, I feel like that's that's your cost of entry. Podcasts are free. Buy the book. Uh, oh no, uh, spoiler alert. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I'll, I'll make a point I mean, of it in the intro, so people will okay, have already right, heard the yeah. spoiler warning. Yeah, well, I mean, so basically she's, yeah, I mean, it's, she's very cynical. She's a very cynical character. She has a very cynical outlook on love, I think, and, um, and, and, a, and on herself. Her self-image has suffered a blow at that point in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, her self-image has suffered a blow from page one, but, um, yeah, I mean, so she says something along the, I mean, I, you know, as a, as an author, I am making myself laugh while I write. I have to be enjoying myself while I write. And, um, sometimes I make myself laugh by saying the absolute most ridiculous thing I can think of at the time. And so Nina said something about, you know, she's looking at a, at a baby and, you know, sitting near her and, and is and is talking about this how this baby's life is basically going to be like trash, <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and like like it, this baby isn't even aware of how possibilities have been closing off since the moment of her conception or something along those lines, you know. Right. Um, but it's, it's, she's she's projecting, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and and I think she thought I think she also sometimes is. Um, She's manipulating the reader in a way, you know, she's like having a pity party with herself and and asking for sympathy um, in a not very admirable way sometimes. Yeah. 
you know, and, and the book does sort of end with the beginning of the apocalypse, really, like, yeah, <laughs> the ensuing yeah. incident to finally make the divorce happen is the election of Trump, like, that certainly. Um, yeah, I think it was, well, I, I mean, they didn't get, well, no, I mean, it's not, there's no, I would, there, it's, first of all, I'll say there is no divorce in the book. That's true. Um, yeah, there's no divorce in the book. Um, so, uh, but there's for sure a moment of rupture um, yeah. with the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right. And I think that was, tr- and again, I was, you know, I mean, I said earlier, one of the things that I was thinking about was our toxicity in our homes. And, you know, um, yeah, the, I think that election was a, a moment of rupture for a lot of you know people's relationships it was a moment of truth you know yeah um relationships with their intimate partners and their parents and their friends um and it you know it it has only continued to to um drive people apart yeah absolutely i i'm I'm just rereading the last page and I'm remembering how I felt when I reread the last page and I know why I blocked it out of my mind because <laughs> it's just like, Oh God, uh, nobody learned anything. Uh, at least Aaron didn't in my mind. I mean, maybe he did, but like, uh, well, there's not enough I mean, evidence for can, me. People can change. <laughs> I, sure. They people sure can. can. Yeah. Um, I think Nina, I think Nina has learned a lot. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, um, I, I do think she's learned a lot. How could you not, given what she's been through? You know, it's, and I think that that line rings so true for her on so many levels. I mean, there are so many different interpretations, right? Yeah. Um, of the last line. I don't want to give the last line away. But, no. You know, I, I mean, yeah, there, there are lots of different ways. There are lots, many different ways predictions that you could make you know scenarios that could play out from there right <laughs> you know what could that possibly look like for each of them mm-hmm. and and also what has it looked like i mean you know um a lot has happened in the ensuing pages yeah i i remember feeling as I, as i read the last page of true love feeling getting the same sort of feeling that i got um, at the end of Binary Star, uh, I really like your endings. Uh, I find Thanks. you're welcome. I, I find that sometimes, I don't know, endings are hard. Stephen King like notoriously like knows that his endings are bad, but you know, <laughs> everybody buys his books and reads his books just kind of like knowing that like oh yeah, the last five pages are gonna just they're they're there because they have to be there. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I I, don't, I feel like endings are important and. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Like it, I guess it was interesting to me at the time that like the the impact hit the same for both books to me, even though they're they're different books and have different endings. It hit the same. Yeah, I uh, I take a long time to find my endings. It takes it it's um it 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 really doesn't happen until the very last draft. Mm. Um, for me, I, I, I wrote a lot of different versions of that ending and, um, yeah, 
Yeah, for me, it's actually always it's the last line. It's the it's it's like it's when I write the last line that I know I've I've found the ending. Um, and I mean, I might have ideas, you know, various ideas about how something is going to play out as I near those pages, but um, but I really don't know what's going to happen until I'm right there. Um, yeah, and then. I mean, even like there's a there's in the last scene there's an overturned bottle of laundry detergent that's like spilling into the gutter. That was mm-hmm. a very last detail, you know. I mean, I didn't really um, and know that was going to be there until I wrote it. You know, yeah. I was like, what would capture what would capture this mood perfectly, you know? Um, and the first you know image that I mean, I asked, I had to ask myself that question in order to come up with that image. I was like, how does this feel right now? If I had to put this feeling into if I had to capture this feeling in an image, what would that image be? And it was, it was the most useless thing that I could think of, which is just soap cleaning the, the sewers. Yeah. <laughs> Using soap to clean the sewers, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and it's because it's an emotional process, you know, like you're trying to capture feelings with words and they're never going to be sufficient. And it's always going to take a long time to, to get there because, emotions are really murky yeah yeah oh man all right um yeah i i feel like uh that's the the way that you expressed writing that last little bit is sort of the the difference that i intuit going back to our like academic versus just pure like indie sort of uh un raw sort of writing like the difference between jazz and like a like a like a symphony where i feel like there's the the knowledge of what questions to ask yourself versus like or not even versus but like along with intuiting what needs to happen it's just like a more refined sort of thing mhm yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to respond to that. Um, yeah, I mean, every, well, yeah, I mean, every scene includes a certain number of elements, a certain number of, you know, certain things have to be there in order for it to be a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got to have characters and dialogue, so that's covered, you know, and then, so, you know, a natural next question is what, should they say yeah (laughs) you know and then a natural next question for me is um what do i need them to say you know what do i need to get across here um meanwhile you're helping the reader understand why certain things are being said or certain things are being done you know not every scene has dialogue but you know as an example um you know, what kind of, why certain things are being done. And so you have to begin thinking about images as delivering information. Um, you know, and I mean, so does that make sense? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, so for instance, if, if, if a character takes another character's hand and you have an image of these, and you show the reader those hands clasped together, that's a piece of information. That's a moment of closeness. You know, and even the character's reaction to their hand being taken is information. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an image that delivers information, right? So, 
Um, and and similarly, the weather, the you know, in the scene, the atmosphere um, is information. You know, so if it's overcast or if it's glaringly sunny and hot, um, that's also delivering. That's that's important emotional information. It's tone. You know, um, yeah. So that's what I'm thinking about when I'm writing, and then the action and the dialogue comes out of you know questions that I'm asking myself too. I mean. That's how I take the reader on an emotional journey with me, not to be cliche, but um, yeah, I mean, it's like I'm helping them follow my inquiry. I'm going to begin, I'm going to read from chapter two, and um, at this point, Nina has uh She's gone to rehab and she's back in her hometown. She dropped out of college and um, had to go to rehab for two months. And she's back in her hometown now trying to piece her life back together. And um, she's about to go see her her hypnotherapist. It's swarming season and my building is infested with termites. I awake to their wings beating against my cheekbones. I gather some into a plastic lunch bag to bring to my landlord who's insisted she needs to see a living sample. My duplex neighbor composts in a plastic trash can five feet from my back door. I drag the can in front of their sun porch screen and ride my bicycle to the hypnotist's office. My mother disappeared and my father was always working, I tell her. I've been seeing the hypnotist on a sliding scale for the last month because I have a deep intuition that something is wrong with me, somehow related to my unnameable trauma, and hypnosis seems compatible with my daily wake-and-bake habit. She's white in her late 40s with dreadlocks and carved wooden gauges weighing down her ears. The henna on her hands looks like Spanish moss, and her office is plush with amber lighting, Palo Santo, and embroidered pillows. She told me in our first session that after 10 years of working with children in foster care and five years in disaster relief, this is the field where she feels she can make the most difference. I wish I could offer it for free, she said. I'd have a babysitter three or four nights a week, and it was always some teenager who would invite her boyfriend over, I say. I'd call boys in my class who didn't want to talk to me, who would answer the phone and hear my voice and hang up. Sometimes they were friends, but everyone eventually leaves me. When I moved back to Florida, none of my college friends even called me. After rehab, I attended NA for two weeks, then hooked up with a crust punk I met smoking outside after a meeting one night. The topic had been loneliness. I was gazing at a light fixture where moth after moth incinerated itself. I'm an only child, too, he said to me, bumming a cigarette. Though drawing him closer into my emotional sphere seemed risky at that critical stage in my sobriety, I couldn't bring myself to prefer being alone after that. I couldn't find it in me to reject him when he'd shown me such kindness as to ask me for a lighter. I moved him in with me. He began smoking crack again, but I couldn't take him out because then he'd be homeless. This went on for weeks until I met Seth riding my bicycle home from the pizza shack. He was two blocks from my apartment, unloading bags from the back of the gallery's pickup. I recognized him as a moody artist from my high school. He invited me upstairs to drink tea, and a week later we fucked on his mic-crawling rag rug. I continued fucking him for another month until I worked up the nerve to dump Mission. Mission skipped town to go train hopping again. Seth has never let me forget this series of events, even two years later. Whenever he can, he subtly alludes to the weird of my life. Seth doesn't trust me, I tell the hypnotist. It's his Lutheran upbringing and his parents' divorce, and then, of course, his dad died hit by a Mack truck. I think he blames his mother on some level and by extension, all women. I don't know how to leave him or if I should or how I even could or how I can fix things between us. He's moving to New York with me, which seems to suggest he loves me. 
You love him, she says. Yes, love is a trance. Is that a song? A trance is an inwardly directed, selectively focused attention. It's a story in which you become so absorbed you can't see anything else. She opens a drawer to her left and removes a smudge stick. She lights it and waves it back and forth until the smell of stage fills the room. Pretend you're alone, she says. She's obscured behind a curtain of smoke. They're orchids, Seth told me that first day upstairs. He was reading my mind, brewing tea in a thick jar. He set a timer on the kitchen counter in a beam of late afternoon light. The room was dense with tendrils of hanging flowers, which I'd been admiring. They're not always the most beautiful, but they have bilateral symmetry, so when they bloom, they look like human faces. They watch you. He kept his eyes downcast, then looked directly into mine. He was taller than me by almost a foot, so I tilted my chin up to him. His cotton shirt was worn through, nearly transparent. Do you smoke weed, he said, inviting me to sit on the rug while he sketched. He passed the joint down to me. Chrysanthemums bloomed in the golden water of my jar. The sound of him enchanted me. His confidence convinced me he was wise. What is art, Nina? He asked me. I still am not sure. What faculties does it command? Which aspects of our humanity, of ourselves? It may be easy to talk about, but it's hard to accept. What do I want out of it? Where do I want to go with it? He turned on a lecture by Alan Watts and talked alongside or over it for my benefit, filling in the details for my full understanding. The topic, coincidentally, was how to attract your soulmate. On the deepest level, a person on the whole can get in the way of his own existence, Watts said. I found myself telling him about the novel I was writing. I asked him if he would read it and give me feedback. I'd begun drafting it in my notebook when I moved back to Florida, disconnected from the internet and unsure of what else to do with my sobriety. The story followed a college student who'd been forced to go to rehab. I brought him a copy the next day in an orange envelope. I'd written the title on the front and signed my name underneath. I'd like you to model nude for me sometime, he said, taking the envelope. He held me with his gaze, if you would be comfortable with that. A trance shapes what we see and how we respond, says the hypnotist. She hands me a tiny bottle of water and a tissue. I've drooled on myself. We're highly receptive, much like when we're in love. It's debatable whether we even have full use of our judgment or our faculties. She tells me I need to work on my self-esteem, then she leads me through an intervention that involves tapping various parts of my body, repeating a mantra. I leave with a recording of our session that she's burned onto a CD, which I have no way of playing. I notice I've been in her office for two hours. Please don't apologize, she says. I enjoy it as much as you do. 